0: Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiades. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Governor DeSantis leads again with his Stop the Woke Act. Dr. Mark McDonald joins me to talk about his book, United States of Fear. You will love it. Um, and uh, Trump derangement kicks in. Cheney fumbles, Meadows sues, update on January 6th. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. I am America. One
1: voice, united we stand. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by G.C. Works, a Dallas based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry.
0: Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. I'm Debbie Georgiades. We're often talking about my favorite governor in America, Governor DeSantis in Florida. And he did something yesterday or I think maybe been this morning. He introduced a new bill. He's calling it the WOKE Act as in W-O-K-E, and it's kind of entertaining because people always think of, they somehow come up with words that fit the acronym, so Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. But he's essentially saying that in Florida, he is simply going to stop the teaching of critical race theory, and in order to do that, he is going to ban funding to public schools that even hire consultants to talk about critical race theory, to study critical race theory. And he's been very good in the past, as we've talked about, articulating the idea that critical race theory, in short, as he puts it, we're not going to teach our children to hate America or to hate each other. We're not going to do that. He actually also, also talks about businesses surreptitiously bringing in critical race theory in the form of sensitivity training, inclusiveness, all the other uh, kind of you know euphemistic covering for what's really true, which is it's just advancing the racist agenda, the Marxist agenda. Also speaks very openly about the critical race theory having its roots, in ideological roots in Marxism. We've been over that many times on this show, won't go into it, but I want to commend Governor DeSantis for leading. When he does these things, conservatives around the country stand up and say, and, and cheer, thankfully someone is actually listening now bad to the grassroots into what's really happening in America and actually confronting the challenges to America head on not um hinting or trying to somehow you know walk the uh, fence and, and and fail to take a side he's standing up and speaking up and people love it related to that there is a new poll out that is causing Democrats great angst and this was by a Democrat polling group called Equus, Equis, E-Q-U-I-S This firm did polling about Hispanic or Latino voters in America who are now half and half split between Republican and Democrat. And the great news out of this poll is the reason that that Hispanic voters who are a traditional, reliable voting base for the Democrat party, the reason that these uh, Hispanic voters are moving over away from the Democrats and to the Republicans is because they don't like socialism. They don't like Marxism. They don't like what they see the Democrat Party doing. And this is very hard for the Democrats. Of course, they live and breathe trying to sell socialism and Marxism under all of the uh, kind of happy talk language they use and they've got a some chunk of their voting base who actually likes Bernie Sanders and AOC. They cannot alienate the radical left voting base, but the fact is the Democrats are becoming so radical, so leftist, that the Hispanic Americans, and there's a bit more detail I wanna tell you about this before I wrap up the first five. Hispanics are moving away from the Democrat party. This is a beautiful thing, and a big chunk of the reason it has to do with socialism. Another little, a little tiny bit of a deep di- deeper dive into this poll, uh, which is you know, being lamented by Democrats around the country. Uh, it turns out that the people who are concerned about uh, socialism in America, it depends whether you're a first or second generation Hispanic American or you're a third or fourth generation, because they see socialism in different ways. So this poll, first and second generation Latinos define socialism as the government telling people what to do. Well, that is part of socialism, Marxism, communism. Of course, it's the government telling you what you should do. But that's what they say they don't like. The first and second generation, Latino, third and fourth generation, been here longer. They say people will become lazy and dependent on the government. That was their big, their point they don't like about socialism. People become lazy and dependent on the government. Now you hear some leftists trying to say, well, look, there's confusion. They didn't understand socialism. Let me say both those things are true. Both are, Of course, they're both true. You can only implement socialism, you know, Marxism, communism, all these isms we talk about so much by controlling the people. And the more control the government has, the less freedom you have. Of course, in socialist, Marxist, communist societies, they do tell people what to do. Whether you're talking about Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, China, they must control the people's actions and decisions. And it's also true, as the uh, third and fourth generation Latinos are saying, that if you have socialism, which is the government taking control of everything and assuring alleged equality among the people, you end up with people who won't work as we are now experiencing in America. And talked about yesterday, this shortage of workers to fill basic jobs in America, the attitude of, I don't need to work, I seem to be doing just fine, bringing in all sorts of unemployment and uh, and, um, welfare payments of various kinds, I don't need to work. Socialism, Marxism, communism, all breed ugly traits among the people. And this precious, great, extraordinary country called America, it has no place here back to Governor DeSantis. I cannot commend him strongly enough for calling it out and just being brave enough, not trying to somehow lure uh, left-wing voters to back him, just saying, you know what, actually, Uh, it doesn't belong in America. It doesn't belong in Florida. It's wrong. And we are going to try to root it out. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us. He'll be joining us on the screen in just a moment. It's Dr. Mark McDaniel, McDonald? excuse me, Dr. Mark McDonald, And he is a, uh, he's a psychiatrist. He's also an author of this book. I'm gonna hold it up and show you. Uh, and then I will also tell you about it, but this is what it looks like. I did order it on Amazon, don't tell anybody, but I had to get it quickly. The United States of Fear, United States of Fear, And this book is actually recommended and this particular guest recommended by Dr. Simone Gold, who's been on the show many times. She's a founder of the uh, Frontline, America's Frontline Doctors, speaking up about COVID. But this particular book focuses on this pandemic of fear in America. I am telling you, I cannot urge you strongly enough to read it. I cannot urge you strong enough, not just to read it, but to buy it as a gift for your friends. It is a, I mean, it's a substantive read, but it's an easy read. I mean, you, you really, it, it flows smoothly. Uh, not a lot of uh, medical terms that you have to, you know, interrupt your reading to look up, to follow it. Just, just very, very substantive, very good. As you see, I have my usual stickers in place so we can ask all the questions we wanna ask. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Mark McDonald. Hello,
1: sir. Thank you, Debbie, I'm really glad to be here.
0: I'm glad you're here too. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you a story first and then we're gonna launch in. I was so surprised by, in your book, I I didn't know what exactly you're gonna be talking about. I knew knew it was about fear and the COVID um, non-pandemic, but I was surprised and actually um, uh, excited about the idea that you actually address the impact feminism has had on how women think, how men think, how the shift in men's and women's roles has actually hurt us in this era of the uh, COVID panic and, and what we have to do to get out of it. I mean, it was a, unique avenue to getting around to discussing what we have to do to deal with COVID. So um, I'll just tell you the shortest story and then I just want you to start, if you, I wanna go to you and have you talk about why, what feminism has done to uh, our society, why it's hurt women. But the short story I'll tell you is this. So I have a friend, I've known her forever. Uh, She has a son who's like 25, I think. Yeah, 25. And um, she's telling me on the phone recently that she knew he'd been exposed to people. He spent a long time with them in a car, on a car ride. And the next day, one of them tested positive for COVID. I mean, she's in a panic and because he doesn't live at home anymore, you know, he's grown up. So I was trying to be reassuring and say, well, look, you know, it's, I mean, they have all these great treatments now. I mean, you know, you don't need to panic. He's perfectly healthy. He's 25 years old. He may not even get even, you know, be infected he may not become ill but if he does and i was trying to be reassuring where the oddest thing was she got mad at me i mean just kind of saying well i mean you don't understand John. just because you know people who survived COVID doesn't mean that he might and something bad could happen i mean the fear in her voice it was impenetrable and i mean i'm pretty i'm pretty wonky i have mounds of data and studies and urls and links doesn't want to hear any of it so with that kind of springboard, tell us really how we got here, how women in America became so fearful. I mean, and actually, I liked even your, your predicate point that women are, generally speaking, even before COVID came along, inclined to be, and in a healthy way, a little bit more prone to fear, and then talk about what's happened, if you would. That's a long, big, long question. I'm going to to rock and roll and talk about women and fear.
1: Well, Debbie, your friend actually is an excellent example of what I describe in my book, which is a woman who is invested in fear. And I suspect that she hasn't just become fearful in the last 18 months. She probably carried some of that fear with her for a long time before that. In the first third of my book, I lay out how culturally we as Americans, and women in particular, have been groomed to be fearful. I start by describing what happened in the 1950s with the drop-and-cover exercises in public schools to protect us against the effects of potential thermonuclear annihilation, (laughs) moving on into... (laughs) It's laughable now because a desk is certainly not going to protect you from much of anything nuclear. But It moves on into a culture war that started about 10 or 15 years later with the advent of feminism. I discuss environmentalism as well, white supremacy, all these other boogeymen, but to the point of the feminist revolution, feminism became co-opted early on by women who described, as Steinem did, Um, men who are not needed. Um, A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle, I think is one of her uh, famous lines that I quoted in my book. This is not true. It is fundamentally a lie. Women need men and men need women. That's how we form relationships, which is how we form families, which is how we form communities. This is not political. This is biological and sociological. Unfortunately for men and for women, women have been groomed to not only need men, but to find men to be toxic. Masculinity itself has been more recently defined as toxic. Uh, Witness rape culture, this phantom menace of young women that apparently befalls two-thirds of them when they attend college campuses. They can't leave without being raped. Now, largely speaking, even liberals in wealthy enclaves like Malibu and Santa Monica and Beverly Hills, where I live, don't really believe this If they did believe this, they wouldn't be sending their daughters to Harvard and Yale and Berkeley and Stanford. No parent would, obviously. But there's this inculcation in women, by media, by government, and also by corporations, that there is something to be afraid of simply being out and about among men. Men are not there to protect you. Men are there to harm you. At the very least, you should compete with them. At worst, you should protect yourself from them physically. This has been going on for such a long time that when we were all told in March or April of 2020 that there's this great virus that's going to come and demolish our nation, it didn't just start fear. It activated this fear that's been reverberating in our society for a long time. And amongst women, it's been really pronounced. That's why we have Karens and it's not Thomases running around in the street telling people to put their masks on. But I'm not blaming women. And I want to make that very clear. My book is not an attack against women. I'm actually quite sympathetic to them. In fact, I also, and more importantly, blame men for this, because as men have stepped away from their roles as protector, as risk taker, as defender of the relationship, of the home, of the family, as their masculinity has declined, that they have become essentially emasculated, they have stepped away. They have stepped away from their traditional roles and they've left a vacuum. And of course, women want to step in and offer the protection, which men have now vacated the space of. But that is not the role of women. Women are are not. For that reason, women, largely speaking, have become more hysterical in the last two years. Women are always prone to more emotionality than men. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's how they're able to attune to their babies, their infants, their children, to their families. But when there is no one around to help keep them physically safe, When men are running around outdoors with camouflage and gun racks and tats and a mask on their face, (laughs) women do not feel safe. They feel scared. Female police officers have told me this. And they are not cowards by any means. They're police. But they need men too. All women need men. And all men need women. And the left and the totalitarian forces that are moving rapidly, to take over our country, know this, and they know that if they destroy the man, if they destroy the archetype of the man, and they leave women prone and alone and uh, dependent on government, there is no way that we can, as a family, as a community, as a society, as a nation, push back against it. That's why this male-feminine dynamic, this masculine-feminine archetypal deterioration is so central to the takeover of our country by the left.
0: That is so brilliant. So well said. And I, I really do, before we continue talking, I want to, again, we're talking to Dr. Mark McDonald. This is his book, United States of Fear. I simply cannot urge you strongly enough to read it. Honestly, I know we um, we talked about you're going to come on the show again in the new year, where we have much longer time. Uh, but I, I want to go back to something you were saying about women. When I first started reading your chapter on women, I wanted to be a little bit defensive because I actually did, I, I, I'm a lawyer, and I, I do, did like that the, the original, the beginning of feminine, the feminist movement kind of said women can have equal access to education and careers and they're not and, and equal pay. I, I love all those things. But you know, as someone who benefited and liked that, I, I discerned very early exactly what you're saying. The feminist movement became anti-men, which is ludicrous. I mean, uh, anti-men and, and, and therefore uh, really harming the, the natural creation of marriage and, and, and family. Because you were uh, cult, women were being cultivated to think ill of men, to see them as attackers or, or something evil, and the whole toxic male thing was designed to bring we. When our home, my husband, and I use the, the metrosexual term, but whatever it is, turning men into kind of weak and uh, not wanting to be masculine, and the whole culture of, of family then then really broke down. But I wanted to say, I wanted you to address too, please. So in your book, you talk a little bit about there are differences between uh, not all women are uh, exactly the same, of course. And so there are differences in, con- among conservative women versus uh, more liberal women and women of faith versus those without faith. Could you address that and tell how those how does fear play into those distinctions?
1: It's an excellent point. Largely speaking, women in America today who are married, who are church going and who live in rural areas are not fearful why is that because they rely on their families their community and their faith to protect them from external threats the liberal leaning single urban atheist or secular woman is more likely to be afraid because she has no support she has only to look up and not to god but to government to help provide her with sustenance and security that's why when I travel from L.A., a very large metropolitan area, into the middle part of the country, or even into central California, which is essentially a farming community, I sense an immediate change in atmosphere, a drop-down of anxiety, a lessening of fear, of angst, of worry, amongst both men and women. And then when I return to Los Angeles, I can sense it as soon as I hit the airport, as I did a couple of days ago, returning from uh, rural Texas. People are scared, they are uncomfortable. Women do not feel protected, they do not feel safe because here in LA, here in urban areas, they have no one to turn to. I think that this is by design. And I think the design is to destroy all of the forces that serve to protect the government from the people. People who are independent and are forced not forced, but by choice, they rely on their local communities. They don't need big government. Women who are married, women who are churchgoing, women who live in rural areas, they don't need Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to save them. They're already saved. Here in LA, totally different story.
0: On that topic, I will say, I, um, the what well, I have noticed, a big difference, that, you know, I'm in Texas and as a family member recently pointed out to me, all oh, your friends are like you. I mean, we have many, we're very, we're very socially active. My husband and I, we have a lot of friends and mostly they're conservative and they all had the same reaction. I will tell you, when COVID came along in the, whenever that was, February of 2020, we did the thing in Texas, you know, and we didn't know what it was. And so everyone stays home for two weeks and we sheltered in place and all those kind of things. But very quickly, because I I love to read and I'm very, I I read a lot and I'm analytical. I like to think, I don't like to be pushed around emotionally. I was reading things even very early on. And in fact, I have a good friend here who's a doctor who was saying who discovered early on. Hydroxychloroquine works great. I mean, to help people, especially as a prophylactic to prevent COVID and then if you do contract it and become ill, it helps you in your treatment. And then other doctors came to my show to talk about uh, Ivermectin and hale as very effective treatments. So I learned these things, and I would think most women and men, anyone, would be so happy to hear these things, but it's like, it's a weird thing to say, and I wanna hear your psychiatric evaluation, but it's like women draw strength and security from being fearful. I mean, when it, you try to penetrate and say, look at all this data look at the recovery rates and look at the CDC information. Um, you know, unless you have pre-existing comorbidities or you're very, very senior, you're going to be fine. And it's like fear is a security blanket. Is, is that okay? I'm not a psychiatrist. Is that Nettie?
1: No, it's not. I actually think you're right on. I think that fear is sort of the fuel that's been driving this, what I call psychological pandemic, pandemic of fear. The pandemic on a medical level has really been over for a very long time. We won that battle a long time ago. It would never have even occurred had Americans been offered rather than denied early treatment, which we had from the very beginning. And Dr. Peter McCullough has laid this out beautifully in the most recent Joe Rogan podcast, where he described the concerted effort, the organized plan to actually deny treatment from the very beginning to Americans so that they would all become fearful and turn towards the only potential way out, which is universal vaccination, which of course has been an abject failure and has cost us, in his opinion, the lives of approximately 85% of those COVID deaths, which is a lot of people. So women in particular become fearful. And then, as I described earlier, the causes of that and why it happened. And then when you provide them with information Data, reason, logic, argumentation, irrefutable evidence, they refuse to change their minds. And this is a very, psycholo- very simple psychological uh, principle. People who are afraid, and people who are afraid chronically, who are what I would call traumatized, cannot use their rational faculties. They are irrational. They are, as I describe in the title of my book, overcome by a mass delusional psychosis. When I started my training in residency, I would walk into a locked unit with a badge under my my vest. And I would remind myself when the door closes behind me, anyone that I see inside without a badge may be psychotic. I cannot reason with those people. When I started to leave my home in spring, summer of 2020, when my front door closed, I had to remind myself anyone that I see wearing a mask outside is probably crazy. Irrational, I cannot deal with that person on a rational basis. I have to treat that person like an inpatient, like a psychiatric hospitalized patient. And that's what I've done ever since. And LA is basically one giant open air sanitarium. Everyone (laughs) walking around is crazy, clinically delusional. People driving with masks on in their cars with the windows rolled up by themselves. I saw a young girl just recently after dark, on a Friday, bars closed, on a scooter, riding home, drunk, no helmet, no headlight, with her boyfriend hanging around her waist on the back, two to a scooter, unsafe and illegal. But guess what? She had a mask on. She was trying to keep herself safe. This is the level of insanity that we live in here in L.A. and in many other urban areas. So the reason why your friend could not See what you gave her, could not change her mind, was not because she was stupid, not because she was uneducated. Many women and men with multiple degrees and letters after their names are in the exact same boat because they cannot think anymore. They have abdicated their rational thought processes to emotion and to fear. Until the emotionality, the psychological pandemic is treated and cured, we cannot get beyond this. We cannot move forward. That's why this is a psychological more than a medical crisis
0: that is so brilliant i want to run through i i know i forget what we said in in terms of time commitment but i'm hoping you have about do you still have 10 more minutes i want to hit two big topics. absolutely okay first thing was you did a great thing um the media's had obviously been been you know horrifically complicit in characterizing the this uh pandemic as the scariest thing ever and and just infusing inflicting fear upon our population and you know again if you were kind of more logical and data-driven, you started to recognize what they were doing, But you ran through, I don't know what chapter, I'm in chapter three here, okay. You ran through the different ways in which fear was cultivated in society and largely by media. One was inflated fatality numbers. And I, I want you to address that in a moment. I'll remind our listeners that we talked a couple weeks ago about the country of italy that has whatever their equivalent is of america's um you know cdc they put out data related to to uh health and 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 death and all that and they had in italy a certain a very high number of uh people who allegedly had passed on from COVID. and then they went back and looked at all their so it's a really big number and whatever the number was they went back and looked at the data of people in italy who died from from with COVID. And they distinguish between people who died due to COVID, as in COVID killed them, and people who died who had, were tested and had COVID, but COVID didn't lead to their death. I mean, COVID didn't cause their death. They, they had a heart attack, a motorcycle accident, but they happened to be carrying the coronavirus. So the actual percentage of people in the Italian data, when they took everybody out who didn't die due to COVID, but just died with COVID, the percentage of people and their entire 100% of the people who died from COVID died in their statistics and out to the country, 3% of the people, 3% died due to COVID. COVID killed them. All the rest were exaggerations. Now, I want to have you talk about the impact of inflated fatality numbers. You have some great stories you threw into And If you briefly address you know, the craziness of the way our country reported um, COVID fatalities. Think about this.
1: Every day, you wake up in the morning, and let's say the first thing that you see or hear is the number of cases of car accidents that occurred in the previous 24 hours. Added to the numbers from the day before, and the day before that, going back a month, two, three, six, twelve, eighteen, twenty 20 months. 100, 20, 000, 2 million, 20 million. And you also hear about all of the cases of people who died in those car accidents. And those numbers just keep going up and up and up as well. After 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days, at some point, you're going to ask yourself, is it really safe for me to drive now? I mean, the cases of car accidents just keep going up. They're through the roof. We had another 5,000 cases yesterday. Now, they could have been fender benders, they could have been flat tires, they could have been uh, out of gas, but there's still cases, there's still accidents. And a lot of those people seem to have injuries and deaths. I mean, some people are dying after they get out of their car when they have a hamburger and they have a heart attack in 7-Eleven. But it definitely was related to the car breaking down and the accident. It's definitely a car death. Well, eventually you're gonna stop getting into cars completely. They're just vehicles of death. They're 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 frightening, they're scary. Nobody survives these cars. This is exactly what happened with this coronavirus Wuhan flu virus case count, hospital count, and death count. Not only were the numbers inflated, they were intentionally designed to scare us. When death stopped, when hospitalization stopped, we have finally moved to positive cases, which we're still doing now. You very rarely hear about deaths or hospitalizations now, right? All you hear about is cases, and cases just keep going up. Two million cases, 24 million cases, they're never going to end. This whole system of reporting information by the media was by design meant to A, keep us scared, and B, keep us attentive to the news. By keeping us attentive, the ratings stay up, and by keeping us scared, we stay home, we watch more news, we don't go to work, we don't associate with friends or family. Media and government wash each other's hand, as well as corporations like Amazon, which earned one billion billion, first time in US history a corporation has earned $1 billion with a B, per day in gross revenues during the pandemic. Why? Because nobody goes in shops anymore. They just order everything online. Everybody benefits, media, government, corporations, everyone benefits, but we all end up losing. Every single one of us loses, children, adults, the economy, military, safety, police, fire, everybody loses. This media intervention, this calumny of media, government, and corporations has been one of the biggest drivers of fear from the very beginning. People don't talk to one another, they don't go outside, they just sit there and get the feed day after day after day. Does anybody know that the CDC still to this day acknowledges that 94% of all of the so-called COVID deaths occurred in cases of people with, on average, 2.6 to 2.8 serious comorbidities, like heart failure, lung disease, end-stage renal cancer, People who would have been dead within six to nine months anyway, most of whom were over the ages of 75, many of them were over the age of 80. Life expectancy is less than that. In the state of Ohio, the average age of death, the fatality rate of death by age for this COVID death is six years higher than the regular death age from all causes. Meaning if you catch the Wuhan virus, you're likely to live seven more years than the average person. That's the conclusion that I took away from it. This is all absolute idiocy, nonsense, but it is by design. The media have from the very beginning intended to scare us for their own benefit.
0: And sadly, they've convinced they, they have succeeded in some cases. You then went on to talk about uh, the pushing by the, some, this past summer, 2021, of universal testing and then uh, pushing vaccination rates. And that is one arena that I'm truly shocked about the, the vaccination push, because the data relating to CDC, it's CDC's own data relating to vaccination, injury, death rates is so alarming and I, I, I co-hosted somebody else's talk show recently and there was one guy on who was a you know really smart guy he's got I think he's got two PhDs you know, he's a brilliant guy but just when I mentioned all of the data of theirs that is speaking of vaccine injuries uh, whether it's the, the, you know harm or death was that wasn't met with eye rolling oh that's ridiculous that's not true I, I mean the the misleading of America continues into the average American not understanding the potential danger flowing from the existing vaccines. I, I, I mean, again, how does this even happen in America, an allegedly well-educated c- country with filled with doctors like you, psychiatrists, doctors like you, data available. And is this like more of the fear kicking in? They just can't even process. The vaccinations are a safe space and so we can't make anything bad uh, seem real about the vaccinations. I mean, what, what explains this refusal of people to process the danger of the vaccines?
1: Part of it is fear driven from the beginning, but right now it's gone beyond that. There are people, Americans, particularly those who are well educated, who can zoom in from home, who actually benefit from maintaining this appearance of fear, they inculcated in themselves. Just today, a man told me, he's a chiropractor, colleague of mine. I've got a patient in my practice who just said to me the other day, I just hope this keeps going on until at least March because I just really want to stay working from home in my chalet in Tahoe. (laughs) He said that. (laughs) I hope people don't wake up and start to calm down and go back to work at least until March because I need two years in Tahoe. He's been working from Tahoe in his chalet for the last two years. This is actually happening. There is a self-preservation there is a self-motivation behavioral feedback loop with a lot of Americans to stay afraid. They actually benefit, many of them, by lockdowns, by shutdowns. Now, in the end, they're not really benefiting, but they think that they are. There's another group of people who just like to be afraid, because when you're afraid, then you don't have any excuse not to go out. You don't have any excuse not to go to the gym, to eat well. You can get fat, you can drink, you can use drugs, you can lie around and bemoan how sad your life is. Why? Well, I can't go out. It's too frightening. It's too dangerous. Everything is so scary right now. People like being victims. People like giving up their responsibilities, their discipline, and then not being able to blame themselves. And no one can blame you now. Who can, who can blame you if you're sitting in your home locked away for the last two years? Well, she's being safe. She's afraid, and rightly so. A lot of people are dying. If someone had said that to me two years ago in my practice, I would have said, you have a mental illness, you need therapy and treatment. Now if I say that, I'm being insensitive, I'm denying the pandemic, I'm being mean. You see how this psychological grooming starts to almost reflect back, not just from the government and corporations, but it reflects back from the actual citizens themselves. Because to some degree, they kind of like this. To some degree, they're more comfortable with this. And comfort, easiness, sloth, greed, anger... Um, And now more recently, something really sick and perverted, uh, which is sadism on the part of people who are scared, intentionally inflicting cruelty and humiliation on others for one's own pleasure and gratification is now being released and amplified. Sadism has become a virtue. Telling someone, I hope you die because you didn't get your vaccine and hope you suffer. That's not disgusting and sick. That's to be applauded. That's a good social comment. That's keeping that guy in line. He made his choice. He deserves to die. He put us at risk. We're actually hearing this from our neighbors. We're hearing this from our media commentators. We're hearing this from politicians. We're hearing this from Joy Reid. It's disgusting.
0: It is disgusting. And, you know, uh, a lesser thing of the sadism is just how this whole cultivation of fear coming out of the uh, the media, but also really out of the the larger medical establishment in Washington, D.C., Dr. Fauci, the NIH and CDC, that this cultivation of fear, it has justified in people's minds just pure anger. I mean, I I mean, your stadium is like one step further, but just pure anger and hatred at the unvaccinated and they should be punished. They should be told they have to stay home when the unvaccinated are not hurting anybody. And even though doctors keep coming out saying the unvaccinated aren't hurting anybody that you can't, it's it's like they're comfortable with someone to blame and someone to be angry with. It it, is mind blowing. I do want to make sure in your fourth chapter, your last chapter, which is called the way forward, working our way back to sanity. And again, My happy listeners, I cannot urge you strongly enough to read this book. It it really explores much more than just what I often do in the show, which is the politics of it, the legalities of it, the efficacy of various treatments, but kind of the psychological or psychiatric Uh, forces in play in America before we even got to COVID, and and the role of of women and men, and and how as they become contorted, uh, it's actually contributed to the ability of those trying to manipulate Americans to keep us in fear, perpetual fear mode, perpetual pandemic. But your fourth chapter you have, um, which I I like the first sentence, the United States is now made up of two distinct classes of individuals, the rational and the irrational. I love that sentence. So, but then going forward, so we have the irrational and it seems like, as we were talking about, you try to present facts, data, links, and and they just, that you can't penetrate their fear, which you have a bunch of great suggestions. I mean, starting with individual accountability, the one I wanted to hit with you though, and have you talk a little bit about individual accountability, you know, holding people accountable for their views and their treatment of others. But then you got on to talking about, I want to find the, I circled it, I need my stickies, um, You talked about the need to address the med, I don't have it circled in the correct way. Um, The basically talking to the medical community, how you have the um, physicians, doctors, the medical establishment who have found it easier to go along with this pandemic of fear than to try to change it. Can you talk about how we do that? How how do we try to bring that change? And and also the medical uh, periodicals and journals, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Journal of American Medical Association both playing the pandemic fear game. How do we get out of this?
1: So the periodicals are completely corrupt, and so are the medical associations. Peter McAuliffe has said this to me repeatedly in the last few months. If you print something, if you submit to publication any journal article that say advances the cause of early treatment, it will not be published, period. The only valid articles that you can read that are scientific journals right now are preprint pre-publication. They will slow walk that article on the newest treatment, such as the efficacy of dilute betadine oral nasal rinses that achieve 80 to 90 percent cure within 72 hours, even in Bangladesh or Botswana. They will slow walk that till the cows come home. You will never see it in print, but you will see it in preprint. Amongst the organizations like the AMA, which is entirely corrupt, has come out recently with a public policy statement denying the accuracy and the usefulness of placing sex on birth certificates everybody's born as an x not as an m not as an f no male no female public policy position not not just an argument in debate within their halls that's it this is their formal position right now on sex it doesn't exist anymore american medical association they have to go all the journals all the periodicals all the medical associations done over all physicians need to withdraw the public has to denounce them we have to start over. We have to have a free open source journal system. We have to have new medical associations run by non-corrupt individuals that are peer controlled and peer reviewed. As an individual citizen, though, how do you get involved? What do you do if you're not a doctor? Well, you do the following? You call your physician. You say, if I were to catch one of these viruses and these variants, would you treat me? And would you treat me with steroids, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, oral nasal rinses? list off two, three, four, five different treatments that are non-hospitalized intubation till I die with Remdesivir injections that destroy my kidneys and send me out in a body bag, which is essentially murder. If your, do- if your doctor says, are you kidding? There's no treatment for this. Just go get your booster shot. You'll be fine. Leave that practice now and then pick up the phone, rinse and repeat and dial until you find somebody who actually believes in real medicine. That's one thing you can do as a citizen. Same if you're looking for a therapist. If you want to talk to a therapist and you call the therapist and the therapist says, sorry, I only do Zoom sessions. I don't allow patients in my practice because we have to be safe. Hang up the phone, dial, find another therapist until you find one that says, I would love to see you in person. In-person therapy is the best way to treat mental illness. Get down on your knees and say, thank God I found the right one. And then go and support him or her as much as you can. Same thing with pharmacies. If you find a pharmacy that will not fill your ivermectin prescription or hydroxychloroquine, ask your doctor to send it to a, to a compound pharmacy, a pharmacy that's owned and operated by a family. Those are the only ones now that will fill these prescriptions. Leave Walgreens, Rite Aid, Walmart. Put your dollars where your beliefs are. These are things every single American can do. If we all did this, if we supported businesses, doctors, pharmacies, who actually shared our values of freedom, equality, truth, We could, as a nation, shut this thing down right now.
0: Okay, I have to tell you, first of all, Dr. Mark McDonald, this again is his book. And and listeners, I'm gonna tell you something. We barely, in this wonderful interview, skimmed the surface of all the amazing substantive content in this book talk about within the book, we won't get to today, but we will another time, has to do with the uh, the repression of freedom of speech, the loss of our constitution's promise of individuals being able to speak, uh, not just in media, uh, but in life, doctors be able to speak without being threatened to have their licenses uh, pulled away or in some way get some uh, punishment from the medical boards. This book is an amazing. Cruise through America's experience with COVID and, and much more broadly with the idea of fear as, of, as a pandemic itself in our society. Uh, Dr. Mark McDonald, I just, I, I love your book. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm going to be back on the email trying to get you set up for a longer interview in the new year. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: You've got it. Thank you so much. Wonderful opportunity. I enjoyed speaking with you.
0: Love speaking with you too, sir. Okay, so get this book. Okay, I'm gonna do one last topic today, but before I do that, I'm gonna tell you guys something. You guys, my listeners, um, I want to tell you about uh, My Pillow. And before I even put Mr. Becker, don't put it up yet. I'm gonna just say something. I wish that Mike Lindell, who is the founder of My Pillow, and it was his, you know, dream. He actually put it in place and he's had comm- successful commercials successful product, successful company, long before the battle over the election of 2020 came around. He was in the fight. He was just a businessman. He's a guy who overcame drug addiction and, and, you know, with uh, an amazing life story. Um, We were given, he actually, at an event we met him, we got his book and my husband's actually read the whole thing. I've not read the whole thing yet, but he's overcome amazing challenges in life. True Drug addiction, scary level drug addiction. You know the kind of drug addiction that unfortunately many people just end up at the end of their life, and, and they you know pass on from the uh, the impact of the drugs they put in their system. This guy overcame that, uh, turned his life around, formed a new company, MyPillow.com. And the MyPillow.com originally was just selling pillows. It was just a really high quality pillow. And I think for people who don't sleep well at night, which is not yours truly, but for people who don't sleep at night, the perfect pillow makes all the difference in the world. They have, so he at MyPillow made small, medium, and large pillows and soft, medium, and hard pillows. And so he has his online business, mypillow.com. He was selling these pillows in the large, you know, b- um, box stores that, and and the uh, larger stores that have, you know, that sell things that relate to home furnishings and such. And because he became outspoken about his concerns of the November 2020 election, uh, he is now, you know, you talk about the left-wing media mob, the uh, just goes after you, will destroy you, the, c- the cancel culture that says. If we don't like what you're saying and we don't like what you're doing, we will shut you down, we'll ruin your life, we'll ruin your business, you'll never be able to thrive and survive again. So he, Mike Lindell, continues his quest. He's been His company's been very, very successful. He continues his quest to try to get the information that he's aware of that is validated by people way smarter than me or anyone listening to this show, and really smart people. Data people have analyzed the the election and can tell you in what ways there was election fraud. He wants to get that information out to the public and eventually before a court because there has been no court who's actually looked at the evidence. It's important to know. So back to my pillow. So mypillow.com now banned from stores. Cancel culture trying to shut them down. But Mr. MyPillow, uh, Mike Lindell, has this online business. And I really wish that I were the only talk show host that he ever gave a promo code to. I wish, hey, actually, you can't see the promo code. It's blocked by the bottom thing. Can you see what I'm saying there, Mr. Becker? I don't know if you can slide that thing up somehow. Uh,
1: they, they can see it on the broadcast.
0: Oh, they can't see it in the broadcast. Okay, there's something at the bottom of my screen. All right, so anyway, what I want to tell you is um, I wish he would stop letting all these other talk show hosts you get a, a discount, a, a promo code? Not really, but you may listen to numerous shows that you get, you, you see this little pitch. I'm gonna tell you mine. If you go to mypillow.com, you can pick among wonderful things you could have sent to your home from the website and I, I tell you that their towels are truly that the kind that actually get you dry at the end, especially dish towels. You ever buy a dish towel and you realize you're like wiping the plate, it's just not getting dry? That's bad kind of towels. These are good towels. They have wonderful bath towels, of many sizes, colors, um, and they have slippers. We love, my husband and I love the MyPillow slippers. Uh, bathrobes, we love our bathrobes. The pillows, sheets, they have all sorts of great things. If you go to MyPillow.com, Pick what you might like to order. At the end, when you're uh, checking out, you put in the promo code DEBBIEG, DEBBIEG, bottom right, and you get up to 66% off. You get great prices, high quality products that will never tell you about a product unless I've tried it and I like it, but I love these products. And then I get a small percentage too, and it makes it a way to support this show. I do want to thank, we've had some recent donors to this show. If you don't want MyPillow.com, but you want to support this show, because I do this without advertisers. If you want to support this show, you can go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. That's my website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org. On the homepage, you can hit Um, donate. And you can just make a donation to the show. We love donations. This is a listener supported show, listener supported show. That's how we stay on air, how we get this lovely studio and this wonderful producer uh, is because we have uh, donors. And so if you like what you learn here, I'd appreciate that. You can also go in there and become a member of America Can We Talk. We're changing our system a little bit right now. The membership in America Can We Talk is just $50 a year. You know what you might spend at a nice dinner out for your birthday, $50 a year. And you can get uh, access to our members only shows and new things coming in the new year for being a member. So this is what's going on uh, to just donate to my show. If you'd like to do that, you can donate, you can join and become a mem- member of America Can We Talk or order things on MyPillow.com. I'd love your support. I have done This show since 2014, the year 2014, and never been paid a penny. I do this entirely out of love of country, wanting to preserve America, recognizing America, the great, wonderful, free, and extraordinary, is truly under siege from anti American leftists who wish to destroy it. So, one last topic for today. I I, I talked about uh, TDS, which is Trump Derangement Syndrome, Cheney, who is Liz Cheney, fumbles, and Meadows Sues. I don't have a lot of time to tell you about this, but I want to hit a couple points. We'll probably hit it again having next week because tomorrow is a member show uh, and we have on uh, joining us in studio tomorrow Chad Prather. He is one of the three Republicans challenging the, the incumbent Texas governor uh, in a GOP primary. So we have the three. We've had the other two primary candidates on, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West and Don Huffine's former state senator. Don Huffine's tomorrow's Chad Prather uh, and they're all three primary challenges to our governor, Governor Abbott. That's tomorrow's show. And so I can't get back to this topic until Monday. So I very briefly just tell you this. You're seeing headlines, no doubt, that the January 6th Commission, which, you know, the Democrats control the House, and so they were able to create a commission to look into the non insurrection on January 6th. And they're behaving in such a way it is almost impossible to over dramatize, overstate how egregious their conduct is. Very simply, They have, they are at this point, subpoenaing, trying to call in witnesses who weren't even in Washington on January 6th, people who supported President Trump, people who helped put on the rallies he ran during the campaign, the rallies where he went to various cities and had literally a a massive arena filled, plus thousands outside couldn't get in, willing to stand outside and listen, couldn't even see the stage, that those people supporting those kind of rallies Those people, the the leaders, the organizers, the funders, they are being subpoenaed by the January 6th Commission. You have to understand, their goal is not to get to truth. You've got to process this. The January 6th Commission in Washington, run by the Dems, is not, does not have the mission of getting to the truth about January 6th, to, of understanding uh, what went wrong that day, of understanding who was responsible for what went wrong. This is entirely a political smear operation designed to intimidate Trump supporters and designed to intimidate people who even say, I think I'd like to speak up because I don't like what I see happening in this country. It's a message to Trump supporters and conservatives, don't you think about talking about anything that we say you can't think. On the specifics, uh, we have uh, Mark Meadows, who was at the time, uh, he was uh, at the time of January 6th when President Trump was still in office, but you know the January 20th um, inauguration was coming along for Biden. On that January 6th date, Mark Meadows, chief of staff, was um, part of the um, group advising Trump. And so January 6th Commission calls in Mark Meadows. You know, he first said he wasn't gonna cooperate with them because everybody, understand this, every conservative in the country understands the January 6th commission is not about trying to find truth. It's entirely a witch hunt, very similar to the Trump-Russia collusion hoax run by the Mueller team. It's an effort to demean, demoralize, and silence anyone who doesn't agree with the left, and an effort to frighten the ignorant people in this country who actually buy into the idea that January 6th was an insurrection. I looked up insurrection, by the way. Insurrection, which is what they're calling this, an insurrection is actually the effort to uh, revolt violently against a civil or political authority against established government with with the goal of taking it down. This is not what happened on January 6th. And the left knows it, the media who keeps on using the word insurrection, they know it. Yes, they had protesters in Washington and the protesters were there because they are upset, concerned, frightened, angry because they cannot get the course of the land or people in Washington. To pay attention to what actual, to uh, the election fraud, which uh, the evidence they brought forth about election fraud. So very quickly on, on, on uh, Mark Meadows, he first said he wasn't going to cooperate. Then he decided to cooperate. Then he produced it's something like six thousand pages of documents he produced to the January 6th Commission, uh, and then they wanted to have a deposition. That which uh, a deposition, you know, if you're a lawyer, you know what that is. You sit down, you swear under penalty purge you tell the truth. Someone's typing everything you're saying. They ask questions, you answer. He's trying to carve out. Mark Meadows says, you know, before I can do this, we have to carve out the topics that are privileged. I can't be in there when you're and, and agreeing to answer your questions if they involve matters that, that relate to executive privilege. There are still cases pending in the country's federal courts about what executive privilege should actually apply and whether it should apply to any of the Trump team's uh, interactions that day. So. And they just said, no, no, no concessions. We don't care what you think is privilege. You're gonna come here and you're gonna answer everything we want you to answer. And he's just saying, not doing that. In addition, Mark Meadows produced text messages in response to subpoenas from January 6th commission. He, so he produces the, uh, the text messages, I mean, tons of them. And the left in the form of Liz Cheney, who is no more Republican than this cup, I mean, she is not a Republican, but she's on this committee with the other anti-American leftist Democrats. And she thought, goldmine, look at these text messages. I'm gonna read these out loud. The text messages, which Mark Meadows turned over, were people on the right, on the conservative side. Donald Trump's son, Don Jr., some very highly placed Fox News and other commentators were texting, saying, hey, things are getting kind of wild um, at the Capitol. Maybe Trump should, um, maybe the president, Hold a press conference. Maybe he should make a statement. There are text messages of people saying, "You know, this, says, this is this looking kind of crazy here." So ask yourself: If there is a planned insurrection, like these loopy Democrats are trying to claim there was and there wasn't, then why are all these conservatives getting concerned? Why is Donald Trump it They're actually planning an insurrection. There was no insurrection. These are people trying to figure out what's happening, letting Trump know. Maybe we should be concerned. I'm not too sure that the text messages, I mean, it was laughable that Liz Cheney tried to claim these were evidences of an insurrection. They're exactly the opposite of the evidence of insurrection. They're evidence of highly placed Republicans saying things don't look good right now. And Trump finally did, you know, uh, when he was impeached over, he finally did say, of course, anyone who committed violence that day, committed a crime, uh, should be charged. He said some words to that effect. So trying to say this is trump who said that in fact trump's final words are the, near the end of his speech that day you know and he talked about the people there uh, to if they're going to walk over the capitol he used the word peaceably peaceably assemble that's what he said and somehow that's an insurrection i am not saying that there weren't some bad actions inside the capitol that day i am not saying that everything was perfect obviously some people engage in violence but to take what happened on January 6th, and tried to morph it into an insurrection is intellectually, morally, and legally dishonest. It is hogwash. And Liz Cheney and the entire anti-American January 6th committee knows it's hogwash. They know it wasn't an insurrection. They use that word to frighten ignorant Americans. That's why they use that word, because they think they'll stir up ignorant Americans and they're thinking, oh my gosh, it was really an insurrection. You wanna know if you really wanna charge people with insurrection, how about looking at the people of Black Lives Matter and Antifa who were burning down buildings and burning down businesses and attacking innocent Americans around this country, utter, pure crickets silence out of every Democrat leader in this country. No one had a word to say about that as actual police buildings are being attacked and actually destroyed and property destroyed and people murdered, no problem to them. I'm telling you people, this whole January 6th commission is just like the Russia collusion hoax, just like the impeachment hoaxes. They are lies designed to manipulate the American people. One last thing I'm gonna touch on and we may come back to it later, but I wanna just explain to you how truly evil and sinister these prosecutions are of people. We're going to do more of this. We'll have Julie Kelly joining us in January. She's the writer at American Greatness. Just been a fabulous job covering this story. But I want to tell you something she reported in her column. I think it's on American Greatness. Yeah, on American Greatness today, or yesterday. There's a guy who was charged, who was in the Capitol on January 6th. And he turned himself in January 19th. He's been in jail ever since. And he's going to, this is going to be the first trial coming up. The first trial, this is over almost a year later, and the DOJ is still withholding thousands of hours of video camera evidence that every defense lawyer wants to see to prove what really was occurring and being withheld by the DOJ for national security reasons. So you're gonna be charged, but you can't, you're not allowed to get the evidence which you would need to show what was actually occurring. So this guy, Robert Geiswein. Uh, is going to to be, uh, he has been charged uh, with assaulting, resisting, and impeding law enforcement. Assaulting, resisting, or impeding law enforcement. So he's at the Capitol that day. I believe the charge they're trying to say, that that the conduct they're trying to charge is that he has some kind of spray, you know, that would sting your eyes. I don't know if it was mace or something else that he aimed toward law enforcement. So I don't know what happened that day. I was not there. And actually. The jury in this kind of case should have access to all of the videotape available that day. Somehow the DOJ thinks they get to try this case and withhold evidence from the defense. But I wanna tell you this one particular point just to have you begin to recognize how sinister, un-American and evil the Department of Justice is and the way they're conducting these prosecutions. So they made a motion, the Department of Justice made a motion before the federal district court judge who's going to hear this case, the the trial judge, the federal district court judge, in which they said that this guy, uh, Robert Geiswein, should not be allowed to assert or to make any evidentiary statements, to give any testimony that relates to his claim that he was acting in self-defense. Now, first of all, in a criminal prosecution, the idea that anyone who's being threatened with jail time threatened to have their freedom taken away by the government, but they can't talk about why they did what they did is is beyond preposterous, number one. Number two, what they're saying is he can't talk about what was happening when he got involved in this, whatever it was with the police officers where he's charged with spraying, let's just call it mace. I don't know what it was, something like mace. But you have to understand more evidence is coming out and there have been now videos out showing that police officers were violently attacking protesters. I don't know what happened in his case, but I do know that there's now, in fact, there's another person who died on January 6th beside the American veteran who was shot by a Capitol police officer who wasn't even armed. Beside that case, there was another, there was a woman beaten to death by the police in the tunnel going to the Capitol, uh, beaten to death, and that case is now going nowhere. Like just like the officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt, no charges, no prosecution, never mind. She wasn't even armed, but she shot to death, shot in the head. And now this other case involves a woman who was attacked and beaten in the tunnel. Other protesters were trying to protect her from the police. So I'm getting at the idea. I don't know what happened with this guy, swine guy, but I know if you're charged with criminal conduct and you're facing loss of your freedom, you actually get to defend yourself and say what happened. And they're trying They have, now the the motion hasn't been ruled on as far as I know. But last thing I'll say before I go to why it matters to you. I could not believe when I read this article today, who the federal district court judge is who is hearing this case who's going to be the prevailing over the criminal prosecution of this guy on January 6 Judge Emmett Sullivan the same judge who would not would not withdraw the case would not grant the motion the defense the prosecution's motion to drop charges in the case involving Lieutenant General Michael Flynn I mean, literally, Michael Flynn being defended by Sidney Powell. She finally gets evidence out of the DOJ, which basically showed the entire prosecution of Flynn was a farce, was a lie, was a set-up hoax. So she gets the evidence. The Department of Justice finally has to say, okay, okay, we drop all charges, move to drop all charges, and Emmett Sullivan wouldn't do it he has no right to say no this is a this is a judge saying I don't care what the three branches of government are I don't care that I'm on the judicial branch I get to act as prosecutor I get to to ignore the judgment of the prosecuting entity which was the DOJ and he would not drop the case coming up with all fanciful absurd arguments why he got to keep the prosecution going there's no basis in law ever in American history for what he did I mean finally Trump had to pardon Flynn because this judge wasn't going to let it go. And that judge who ought to be in jail is instead the judge trying this first case of a guy who was inside the Capitol on January 6th. Just think about all that could go wrong. We'll get back to this case again next week. I close the show by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start our day. DeSantis leads again. Equus reinforces him. Florida's Stop the Woke Act bans CRT teaching in high schools and workplaces. No tax dollars can be spent on CRT consultants. Gives parents the right to sue schools. This is a great one. Sue schools who teach CRT in defiance of Florida law. Recent Equus polling of Latinos increasingly turning against the Democrats by majority or near majority. They are opposed to socialism, both because it rewards laziness and because it enables totalitarianism. Both things are true. The more recently they have fled socialism, the more they despise it. Ron DeSantis is showing what a leader looks like calling out CRT as the outrage it is, denouncing socialism in all its forms, and extolling freedom. The states can save America if they have governors like DeSantis and potentially Oklahoma's new maybe governor, Dr. Mark Sherwood, who's on the show yesterday. And we talked uh, about TDS, which is Trump derangement syndrome, Cheney fumbles, Meadow sues. I didn't even tell you, so Meadow was suing Uh, the January 6th committee basically saying that what they demanded, the documents they uh, demanded from him were um, an undue burden, overly broad. So he's trying to get the court to focus on what he should actually have to produce. The left's commitment to January 6th insurrection narrative is absolute, but it is unraveling. Kerfuffle about text messages only confirms there was no organization behind any of it. The January 6th committee, Mark Meadows was cooperating until the committee demanded he waive executive privilege, no inquiry about the 14,000 hours of withheld videotape surveillance withheld by the government, no investigation of FBI Antifa involvement in the January 6th event as Ray Epps, John Sullivan, no investigation of Capitol Police who invited or allowed people inside the Capitol, no acknowledgement of the real reason for millions coming to DC, legitimate concerns about a stolen election, not an insurrection. January 6th insurrection narrative depends on public acceptance of most secure election in history, the quote that came out of the uh, federal government. uh, No, but America's no, there is now overflow, overwhelming and growing evidence of a stolen election. The Insurrection narrative won't hold, it is unraveling daily. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this show, America Can We Talk, every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America, because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time.
1: America Can We Talk. Truth About America.